Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Bus boycotts, lunch counter sit-ins, the fight for gender equality... Pauli Murray was on the front lines of social justice years before the public ever heard of Rosa Parks, Brown versus Board of Education, or the term sex and gender discrimination. Her life is the subject of a new documentary by the Emmy Award-winning filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen. My name is Polly Murray, is streaming now on Amazon Prime Video. Director Julie Cohen joins me via Zoom. Julie, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's great to be here. We last spoke before the release of your outstanding film, RBG. How did that documentary lead to this one? In sort of a direct line, in fact. I mean, Betsy and I learned about Pauli Murray towards the end of the process of editing RBG when we saw that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as a young lawyer, had put Pauli Murray's name on the cover of the first brief that she ever wrote for the Supreme Court about gender discrimination. RBG's argument was that Equality for the genders is secured by the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution in the Equal Protection Clause, which is most commonly and at that point was solely used to prevent racial discrimination. RBG said, hey, this could be used for gender discrimination as well. And that idea actually came from Pauli Murray, who had made the same argument six years earlier, both in a law review article, a law journal article, and a federal case that Pauli argued for a court, not not the Supreme Court, but before a federal district court in the South. So RBG was in fact giving a nod to Pauli Murray. We made note of that name on the brief, but didn't pay that much attention. Like, you know, people on our team said, oh, I I think I've heard something about this person playing a role in the law, you know, important legal uh, works. So when the film came out and we're, you know, starting to talk to people all around the country about RBG's contributions, people would ask us in Q&As, like, whose shoulders did RBG stand on? And when we said, well, there was this other lawyer, Pauli Murray, who had this idea about the Equal Protection Clause being used for women um, even earlier than RBG did, 
that led us, as things do in this day and age, to a Google search in which we discovered Pauli Murray's work on gender discrimination was just the tip of the iceberg of this just enormous career in law, in activism, as you pointed out, not just for women's rights, but for civil rights in the labor movement. Pauli was also a tenured professor, a published, very accomplished author, and ultimately the first black woman-identified Episcopal priest. So there was just so much in this life that we kind of almost couldn't believe that we hadn't heard of this important 20th century figure before. And that kind of set us off on the journey to learning more about Pauli Murray. Yeah. In what other ways were RPGs and Murray's lives connected in their work? Well, in fact, there were several other connections. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg was doing a summer associateship, as you do in in law school at the esteemed New York law firm, Paul Weiss, she went to, to be a summer associate there. There was already a black woman lawyer at the firm And it was Pauli Murray, an associate at Paul Weiss in the late 1950s. Pretty stunning for Pauli to get that job in in that period. So they first met then, and Pauli actually gave RBG a copy of the great uh, family memoir Pauli wrote called Proud Shoes, which RBG, being a big reader and fan of literature, read and was really thrilled with and impressed by. The next point of intersection was actually Pauli Murray was serving on the board of the American Civil Liberties Union and was pushing really hard for the ACLU, which at the time was very much in the battle for racial equality, but really hadn't jumped into the idea of gender equality, which was considered quite a radical uh, notion in the 60s and 70s. And Polly helped push for the formation of a women's rights project at the ACLU and in fact kind of pressed on the ACLU to bring in this young lawyer that Polly had heard about in New Jersey named Ruth Bader Ginsburg to be one of the one of the leads in that organization so they knew each other on the ACLU board as well yeah early in the film the question is asked How can one person be so pivotal and yet so few people know her name? Why were her accomplishments not known to many people even during her lifetime? Well, you know, there's all sorts of reasons. It's a really good reminder of how our history is maybe not so simple as what showed up in the textbooks. You know, some of the reasons are that Polly was ahead of the curve in so many different ways. Polly was often taking up issues before before there was any structure or any broad-based interest in them. Also, you know, within the civil rights movement, Polly experienced sexism. Within the women's rights movement, Polly experienced racism. Often Polly was kind of jumping on to the next thing by the time that attention was brought to a certain issue. Polly was just always ahead of the times. And then in addition, there's the interesting part of Polly's life having to do with sexual orientation and gender identity. Polly in various times early in life, not publicly, but was 
asking doctors, you know, I may appear to be a woman, but I'm actually a man. Is it possible that I might get either surgery or testosterone treatment? Pauli was asking these questions as early as 1940, at a time when there was just no, no language for such things. Like no, nobody was using the term transgender in 1940. And Pauli also had uh, a number of serious romantic relationships and even ultimately life partnership with a woman, um, Irene Barlow, which it was necessary to to keep secret at the time for professional and personal reasons and, and fear of being shunned. So that may have kept Polly perhaps a little quieter than um, a, an activist and legal thinker of that stature would ordinarily be. We could only sort of guess what combination of these factors led to us not learning about Pauli Murray in school as much as we, we feel people people should have learned. But it's actually sort of an important reminder. Um, a professor at Yale named Tina Liu, who is now the head of Pauli Murray College at Yale, which is just within the past four years was named after Pauli Murray, makes the really great point in the film that like those who carefully study history understand that the people who are most important and most influential are not necessarily overlapping with the people who are the most famous and the most celebrated. That's an understanding and a perspective about how we look at American history that's really important and that we all need to be paying more attention to. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights is speaking with Julie Cohen co-director of the documentary, My Name is Pauli Murray. It was sad, I mean, painful to watch parts of the film that address her struggles with depression, especially as related to the way she viewed her gender and sexuality. You talked about her medical notes and just feeling that she was born into the wrong body. It, she was orphaned by age three, but raised by two aunts and grandparents lovingly. Uh, how was the love and support from her Aunt Pauline unusual when it came to the way Polly dressed and acted? Yes. So Polly's Aunt Pauline, a maternal sister who ultimately adopted Polly as her own, had an incredible forward-thinking perspective for somebody. I mean, we're talking here about the 1910s. Polly was born in 1910 and from a very early age wanted to dress as a boy and, you know, sometimes wanted to be thought of as a boy. And basically, Aunt Pauline, who referred to Polly as my little boy girl, <laughs> just was understanding and accepting Polly kind of 100%. Now, the rule was like, look, you dress however you want, except on Sunday when you go to church. And when we're walking to church together, you're going to put on a dress, which Polly did and which, you know, among the incredible collection in Polly's archive are some just gorgeous pictures, including Polly uh, in Sunday best heading to church. Uh, Aunt Pauline was a teacher and brought Polly to school with her uh, because there was no, you know, there was no alternative for childcare. So Polly's four years old and basically sitting in the back of a room of six and seven year olds who Aunt Pauline is teaching to read and Polly sitting in the back of the room just learns to read because <laughs> presumably because Aunt Pauline was a great teacher and because Polly was really smart. And so kind of a combination of intellectual and emotional support 
led Polly, even through a lifetime of struggles, to feel like to have a real, a real core of confidence that we think help explain why Polly was able to push forward and kind of innovate without fear and without shame in various po points, despite societal rejection, because like at the core, there was this, you know, deep family love. And I think, you know, people that have grown up in a family of love and support can understand what a huge difference that can make for how someone deals with life's challenges. Oh, yes, she was encouraged to express her opinions and pursue higher education. How did the treatment of women come as a shock? to Polly as she entered college. Yeah, so you know, Polly was typically of the day maybe, just not like feminism wasn't something that that people were thinking about and Polly had a great experience in New York City as an undergraduate at Hunter College, which was an all women's college and then moved on after being rejected from a master's program at the University of North Carolina because the UNC just said directly in their rejection letter, like, no, we do not admit black students. It was like that. It was that straightforward. So Polly, with a growing interest in civil rights, decides to study at Howard University Law School, the greatest at the time, and some might still argue today, the greatest institution for civil rights law in, in the country where like all of the lead civil rights lawyers are, are, were professors at the time, Thurgood Marshall and others. Polly's thinking, you know, this is where I'm gonna go and study and learn about equality and shows up as the only woman to graduate from her, her law school class, raising a hand in class and finding that the teachers won't call on her because she's a woman or at least she's being perceived as a woman. And this comes as a real shock. It's a rejection that Pauly sort of fought through with intelligence and skill. Basically, in Howard, the grades were posted. And when Pauly's started like getting the top score in every single class and the other students noticed that, like it did kind of make a difference. And uh, Pauly even said by second year, all of a sudden, like, you know, a professor was going to was going to acknowledge that because it, there was sort of no arguing with the level of intellect. But um, I think it came really as a slap in the face for Pauly that at an institution that was fighting for equality and fighting discrimination, that there would be this, you know, kind of harsh discrimination um, on multiple levels against Polly on account of gender. Yeah, you mentioned Thurgood Marshall. There is an iconic photo of Thurgood Marshall with his team on the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court. What's missing from that picture? Yes, well, what's missing is is Pauli Murray, who had developed the idea behind Brown versus Board of Education in a paper Pauli had written at Howard Law, arguing that the way to deal with the, at the time, accepted legal structure and uh, Supreme Court ordained legal structure of separate but equal laid out in 1896 by Plessy versus Ferguson, Pauli's view was, we shouldn't just be trying to push for equality. We should get rid of the whole structure of separate but equal, because by separating the races, you are guaranteeing that there can't be equality. When Pauli raised these issues in class at Howard, the result was sort of a dismissiveness and even laughter. But in the end, 10 years later, in Brown v. Board, that's exactly what the NAACP Legal Defense Fund argued, and it's exactly uh, had, had come from a paper that Pauli had written in third year of Howard Law. 
there's a there is that great photo of a whole bunch of guys. I'm not sure if I counted. I think like ten of them. Uh, none of them are Pauli Murray. I will add on on the brief. There actually is one woman who's named uh, Constance Baker Motley, but she's actually not in that picture either. Sometimes women's accomplishments didn't get brought to the fore as was deserved. As a you know, similar to something that happened to Pauli Murray later in life, like deeply entrenched in the women's rights movement. And in fact, one of the founders of now the National Organization for Women. But again, being a person of color was an impediment to getting the recognition that Polly deserved um, within the women's movement. Julie Cohen, co-director of My Name is Polly Murray. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Let's get back to my conversation with Julie Cohen, the co-director of the new documentary, My Name is Pauli Murray. Here, Cohen speaks to acknowledgments that Murray received for her contributions to briefs used in the historic case of Brown v. Board of Education. Polly said in an audio tape that we have that the then dean of of Howard, Spotswood Robinson, did say like, oh, we took out your paper and it was really useful in crafting our argument. As part of the research for making this film, we actually went back and looked at that law school paper and saw that like some very specific ideas that are in the paper were in fact adopted in the briefs that the NAACP wrote for the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education. So how much exactly Polly was thanked or acknowledged, we don't know. We know Polly wasn't paid for the work. So, you know, in some ways that would be uh, obviously for legal work, the most just and fair uh, thing to do. How much recognition did Polly get for that important innovation? I think the answer is clearly not enough. Hmm. Stepping back a bit, after moving to New York from North Carolina, Polly was struck by some of the freedom she observed that black people had in the North, though there was still ample discrimination. Would you discuss how far ahead of her time she was in the way she protested? Polly's protest against segregation, often before the more famous movements, although Polly was far from the first person to be protesting unfair segregation laws. Those things have been happening since segregation existed. But in some ways, what what distinguished Polly, I think, was just an optimism, 
a good example was when Polly was a student at Howard and on U Street, a largely black commercial area in Washington, D.C., there were restaurants and diners that would only seat and serve white people. You know, sometimes those things can be accepted as, oh, that's just the way it is. But Polly's view to that is like, it's unjust and it's ridiculous and we should fight it. And Polly led a group of students um, as a law student, and there were also undergraduates who put together a very carefully crafted, peaceful protest. We're not going to yell. We're basically going to bring our books and uh, papers into the seats, and we're just going to sit there quietly and do our work, try to order food, and almost dare the owners of these establishments to kick us out. In the end, after some ongoing protests, Polly actually succeeded in desegregating this uh, cafeteria, the Little Palace Diner, and I believe another one on U Street in Washington through a well-coordinated campaign of nonviolence. That, that, you know, exactly the kind of campaign that became, and this is 1943, so the kind of campaign that became much more common and famous 15 years later. Did her path cross that of Martin Luther King Jr.? Yes, so Polly's path did cross Martin Luther King Jr.'s. In fact, we did find some things in Polly's archive, Polly's notes on a draft of a piece of writing that Martin Luther King had written, and clearly there was some correspondence with Martin Luther King. And of course, Polly was following MLK's footsteps when in the 1970s, Polly decided to pursue the seminary and sort of making the connection between politics and the fight for justice and equality with larger spiritual questions. and. Polly very much described having been influenced by MLK's both spirituality and activism in that path of Polly's life. Hmm. Among my favorite takeaways from this film is the phrase confrontation by typewriter. Yes. How do the correspondence with First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt come about? Yeah, so what a what a wild situation and maybe a hard one to imagine today. And you know, an ordinary citizen writing to the president and the first lady and getting a response that leads to a lifelong correspondence and even friendship. So it's 1938 and as I mentioned, Polly Murray has been rejected from the University of North Carolina for being black. Shortly thereafter, FDR stops by University of North Carolina to give a speech. And his speech is about how great UNC, I think, I believe he's getting an honorary uh, doctorate there. And he gives a speech about how great UNC is and how it's this bastion of liberalism. And Pauly listens to that. It was broadcast on the radio and thinks like, well, that's ridiculous. They're not that liberal. They, you know, they're, they're actually even teaching some classes about African-Americans and about race. And yet they won't admit a black student such as myself, won't even consider it. So Pauly writes a beautiful, extremely outraged letter to FDR saying what you said about UNC is all wrong. And by the way, expressing real outrage that FDR was not supporting federal anti-lynching legislation, which was quite a big issue in Congress at the time and which um, we should point out has remained an issue over the years and has never been passed. The, the letter sort of wound up to a point where Pauly says, have you raised your voice loudly enough against the burning of my people? meaning black Americans. 
Pauli sent the letter to FDR, but also made a carbon copy, sent it to the office of Eleanor Roosevelt, thinking like, oh, it's a little more likely that the first lady might have an opportunity to look at my letter. Somehow, whoever was vetting the mail to the White House at that point actually passed the letter on to Eleanor Roosevelt, probably because it's a clearly well thought out and uh, strong and beautiful letter. Eleanor Roosevelt wrote right back and Pauli received that letter and that led to a lifelong correspondence and even, you know, they visited one another. Pauli went and visited uh, Eleanor Roosevelt at the White House and had tea there, also went to the Roosevelt's summer estate in, in upstate New York. So this really became a friendship, but a friendship in which Pauli Murray never pulled any punches. Like if Pauli thought that what FDR had done was wrong or in a great uh, Pauli phrase, a uh, milly mouth, Pauli would just tell Eleanor that. And Eleanor would always respond, say, I, you know, I understand this, even if I don't completely agree with you. Well, effectively, her first letter to the president and Mrs. Roosevelt was a very politely worded, how dare you? I mean, it was confronting just what needed to be addressed. Yes, and how interesting that Eleanor chose to, to respond to it. I mean, the, the great line that we include in the film is, is Eleanor Roosevelt saying, like, you know, just be a little patient. The South is changing, but don't push too fast. But it was the beginning of a dialogue. And I think both of these people, you know, saw it that way and chose to 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 engage with one another, even when... I think Pauli certainly would have been justified in being outraged by Eleanor Roosevelt's position at the time. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, is speaking with Julie Cohen, co-director of the documentary, My Name is Pauli Murray. In the later years of her life, you mentioned Pauli Murray entered the seminary and was the first black woman to be ordained as an Episcopalian priest. What led her to that decision? Yes, so Pauli had a really sustaining 15-year romantic relationship with our Irene Barlow. The two met when Pauli was at the law firm Paul Weiss, where Irene was the office manager. They fell in love, needless to say, perhaps in this era, because we're talking about going back to the late 1950s. This was a not a public uh, relationship as far as the world knew. They were just friends, but actually they were lovers and essentially a married couple in, in this day and age, most likely would have been. Irene ended up getting cancer and, and dying. Polly helped nurse her through that. And then when Irene died, it was devastated, not only to lose the love of your life, but also doing it in a way that had to be less public than, you know, the mourning wasn't public and that made it all the more painful. That led to a crisis of faith for, for Polly, just being really angry with God in Polly's own words, but in such a way that rather than sort of turning away from God, Polly thought like, I, I need to spend the rest of my life pushing for something bigger and looking at bigger meaning. And in Polly's view, that was that was the church, which Polly had grown up in and had always meant something. And Polly and Irene, one of the things that they had kind of bonded over in the first place was both being devout Episcopalians. That led Polly to decide to go to the seminary and study for the priesthood at a time, by the way, when Pauli entered the seminary, the Episcopal Church was not ordaining women. 
So Polly again was just taking a leap of faith that maybe things would change. Sure enough, they did. And Polly was in fact ordained as an Episcopal priest. Her poetry is gorgeous. Just exquisite poems that appear in the film and we hear her voice. Isn't that her voice reading it? Yes, you hear a voice throughout the film and we never use anyone else to be Polly Murray's voice. Those are all actual recordings of the real Polly Murray. Uh, Polly's voice was so strong that we just wanted to, to use it throughout. The poetry is fantastic and ended up being, I think, more a part of the film than we had initially intended because we found that so often a poem would express ideas that came across in the in biographical material that really helped kind of weave one scene into the next and you know it was really astounding to us how often Polly's poems felt very relevant for the current day even though they were written you know going back to the 1930s indeed and i think you mentioned she was a fellow at the mcdowell colony along with james baldwin at the same time Yes, in the 1950s, both Polly and James Baldwin were at the McDowell Colony in the cohort that they were in. They were the only two black writers in that group and became close friends. So, you know, the, the number of people that Polly Murray crossed paths with is kind of just incredible. And James Baldwin was one of them. I mean, certainly an example of one of the intersections that could probably make a whole film in itself. We, we don't have a whole lot of material about their friendship. There was some correspondence between them, but like you could, you know, if you were writing a narrative film, I could ima imagine doing a whole film about Polly Murray and James Baldwin and their, uh, their stay at the McDowell Colony. Oh yeah, that could be a great film. But Given the prominence of her poetry in your film, what are your hopes for serious study of her literary output now? Well, let me say this. I mean, I think one thing that we're excited in terms of the film is how it kind of, you know, because of the way that people watch and like to talk about documentaries, that it helps to popularize some of Polly's work in a more general way, there has been actually some great academic study of Polly Murray's legal work and Polly Murray's writing. You know, we certainly are not discovering Polly Murray here. Academics in general and black women academics in particular have been writing about Polly for decades. Um, and it's just maybe taken the rest of us a little bit too long to, to catch up. I mean, in my view, you know, I think there's actually been some great writing about Polly as a literary figure. What we're, what we're hoping is that the attention that comes with making a documentary and like going out and doing media attached to a documentary will lead more kind of just ordinary people to go out and, um, and read Polly's books. The interest has been brewing over the past four or five years. And in that period, all of Polly's works have been reissued, including the incredible collection of poetry that's called Dark Testament that I would recommend anyone go get. Her poetry, it's not just that it's beautiful, it's, it's quite accessible. I think readers will find it, uh, even people that aren't like the hugest poetry fans in the world will find it a really great read. Julie Cohen, thanks to you and Betsy West. I think that many more probably countless people will now know the name of Polly Murray. Well, I think we certainly hope so. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 
Julie Cohen is the co-director with Betsy West of the new documentary, My Name is Paulie Murray. The film became available on Amazon Prime Video last week. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Canadian comedian Ron James will be my guest. His new book is all over the map, Rambles and Ruminations from the Canadian Road. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.